Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. In this week's episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast, I speak with financial and wealth advisor Roger Whitney, co-founder of WWK Wealth Advisors and host of the popular The Retirement Answer Man. Roger shares with us four myths that could ruin your retirement and how to avoid them, as well as the three phases of retirement and the slow man's method of saving, and how retirement planning is something like the permanent income hypothesis by Milton Friedman. This episode is on personal finance and something I haven't looked at in a while. During the episode, Roger mentions teeter-totters. I honestly didn't know what they were until I googled it and reused the phrase a seesaw. You'll get what I'm on about when you listen later on. So enjoy the episode and why not join the conversation and email me at frankconway at economicrockstar.com or go to economicrockstar.com forward slash podcasts to get access to all previous episodes of the Economic Rockstar podcast. And why not become an Economic Rockstar subscriber and I will notify you by email of the latest episodes. And you can find that on the homepage of the Economic Rockstar website. Thanks for listening. When you're thinking about retirement, don't set long-term goals and think that you have to figure out how to make them happen. Set long-term aspirations, you know, those dreams that we have, and acknowledge that each year those dreams may change. They regret that. You know, they sacrifice their life for the work because it's engaging and you have the affirmation and you have the monetary compensation that makes you feel good and then you end up missing your family. That's the, that's the classic regrets that a lot of people still have. I know quantitative easing. I know how bad all this stuff might be. At the end of the day, we just have to have our own house in order. And if we have our own house in order, we can insulate ourselves from a lot of things. And that's the only way I know how to get through that. Make sure you make the the most of the only life you have. And retirement is part of that, but you don't miss where you're at today. Hi, Frank Comer here, and you're listening to the Economic Rockstar Podcast. I am so honored to have Roger with me join me today. Hi, Roger. Welcome to the show. Hello, Frank. How are you? I'm very, very well. Thanks for joining me. Roger began his career as a financial advisor in 1991 and witnessed firsthand the rise and fall of the new economy and the dot-com bubble that ended in 2000. This experience made Roger realize that financial management is about people, not money, and that they are served best by advisors that are fiduciaries to their clients and have the heart of a teacher. In 2003, Roger left, at the time, the largest private bank in the world and co-founded WWK Wealth Advisors. Today, they are a firm of 14 professionals managing over $200 million in assets. Roger is a lifelong learner and holds many degrees and certifications. He has a BA in International Relations, is a certified investment management analyst and a certified private wealth advisor. Roger also teaches courses on wealth management, retirement planning and employee benefits. His blog, The Retirement Answer Man, was recently awarded the 2015 Plutus Award for the Best Retirement Focus Blog and Podcast. You can check it out at rogerwhitney.com as well as on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. Roger, you're a fellow podcaster. I recently discovered you, possibly because I'm exploring issues that should relate to me in my career at the moment, which is budgeting or retirement, something that a lot of people tend to mismanage or even ignore because they feel that this is something that should be left later in life. What do you say about this? Well, it's very easy to ignore because it's so boring unless you're a money geek, right? Mm -hmm. 
and you can hear from the, my bio, I guess. I guess I am a money geek. But for most of us, we just want to live our lives. So it, it gets to be very mundane. And when you talk about budgeting, Frank, that's a great example of something that it's like flossing your teeth. We all know we're supposed to do it, but it just never is that fun, and we just don't want to get around to it. And do you have any habits that you could suggest that people should adopt, even if it's one habit, like floss that one tooth? <laughs> and then move on from there and build up the habits because we know if we decide to take on so about five or six habits to affect the budgeting that we're not going to do it i have something even better frank and I'll, I'll explain how i manage my family's cash flow or how my wife and i manage it mm-hmm. because i hate budgeting as well and the problem with budgeting is that you end up having to become a bookkeeper for your financial life right mm-hmm you got to download the transactions and enter them in Quicken or in, in Mint, and then you got to track the categories and make sure the categories are on. And then what it ends up doing is making it really a pain, so we end up not doing it. So what I did was the lazy man's way of budgeting, and this, this is how I do my household because I don't want to be a bookkeeper. As much as I'm a financial geek, I don't want to track which category – I'm spending in and whether my grocery bill is running above where it's supposed to. It's just I'm too busy and I have too much fun doing other things to do that on the side. Mm -hmm. So what I did, Frank, was rather than look at it from the bottom up of trying to figure out and set a budget for each category and then track all those little categories, I went the other direction and I went from the top down. So if we think about why we want to track our cash flow, what's the end goal there? So what are we trying to do here, Frank, when we're trying to budget? I suppose we're trying to make sure we stay within our means and have something left over that we could use for conspicuous consumption or possibly retire or have something there that we possibly could have to pay for unexpected outcomes. Exactly. We're trying to capture... That excess earnings that we have, that free cash flow. So if you think of a business term, you have, you know, you, you, the, the free cash flow is the amount of money that's left over after you run the business. And that you can turn into, you have choices with that free cash flow, just like you, Frank, have choices with the excess money that you earn after you run your household. You can spend it on fun stuff. You can increase your lifestyle, you can give it away, you can save it in cash, or you can invest it. So the idea of a budget, really the end goal is we're just trying to make sure we capture that excess money so we can make a good decision with it. So rather than track budgets, what I do, and I'll just use some numbers for example, is we looked at our spending for about three months and we said, okay, we spend, just as an example, say $8,000 a month to run the household of Roger. So what I did was I set up an income account. So I had all of our income from our earnings go into an account that was not our checking or our spending account. So let's just call that an income account. So I would have all of our earnings come into this separate account. And then once a month, I would write a check to my spending account of $8,000. And that's what we had to spend for the running the household of Roger, as an example. And as long as we stayed under that 8000 I don't really care what category it goes in, so I don't have to track it in Quicken or in Mint or in everything else. 
So by having our income come to a separate account and my wife and I agreeing on the front end how much we're going to spend that month, we just naturally adjust our behavior to that number in that checking account. So it makes it a lot easier. It does. It's the first time I actually heard of that because I heard of the app that you could download for Mint or the website that you can um, track all your expenditures. And it seems like a simple method, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I tracking. You know, the problem I've had when in in working with couples is usually one spouse is in charge of the budget, right? They they're the, the nerd that tracks it all, and if the other one's spending, say, too much on groceries, it becomes a conflict because the one tracking the budget, hey, we're spending too much on groceries. What are you doing over there? And then they get defensive about the spending because they're trying to buy food for the household or whatever it is, and it makes it. A conflict, you know, being nitpicky on whether we're going out to dinner too much or or buying toys too much isn't a healthy conversation. As long as you agree on the monthly lifestyle budget, who really cares where it goes? As long as you're managing to that number, and what ends up happening is, you assuming go back to that example if we're spending $8,000 a month and let's say income is $10,000 a month every every month we should have savings of say $2,000 a month and that should accumulate and then you as that accumulates the two of you assuming someone's married can make a decision on what to do with that money together and if you have pay raises you don't automatically inflate your lifestyle to the pay rates like a lot of us do because it never hits your spending account. So to me, it's just a lot easier and it accomplishes the end goal of trying to capture that excess money. That's all well and good for people who have that ability to have the excess cash kept back. But I don't know if the reality is for the majority of people that they do not have the ability to maybe cover their all their expenses or even have the extra excess cash that's left available or left on the table. So are those people removed from the type of advice or conversation that we're actually having today? Well, I mean, that that's a great question. I mean, whether it's you're saving a dollar or saving $2,000 a month, that, you know, it doesn't matter the number of the excess cash flow. So what do you do if you're just struggling to pay your bills? The key is you have to think of the things that you have some realm of control over. So what do you have control over, Frank, in terms of cash flow? You have your income, mm-hmm. right? So you have to think proactively, how can I increase my income? And that could be more hours. That could be networking better so you have better opportunities for a lateral move. That could be learning new skills, making yourself more valuable. It could be building hustling a little bit harder than everybody else so you're in position for the better raise or the better position. It could be doing side hustle in terms of taking a hobby or a skill and making money on the side. So that's one area that you have control, and those are just some of the ways that you can improve that situation. And bluntly, whether you have lots of excess cash flow or not, you should be always figuring out how to improve your position from an income perspective. On the savings, or excuse me, on the spending perspective, Frank, in my experience, and you tell me, I remember when my family and I, when we were, when we, I left that private bank and we started our own business, I had about nine months with no income, and my wife wasn't working. 
So we cut everything to the bone, obviously expense-wise, to the point of selling a house and downgrading a house because we were trying to get our cash flow in place. And it was every month we were trying to – I had trying to figure out, okay, am I, am I going to have enough coming in to pay all of these bills? And when you try to cut expenses, you obviously have to be prudent there, but there's only so much water you can squeeze from a rock in, on the expense side. You know, you know what I mean? If you cut your cable bill, it's not going to move the dial that much. The bigger opportunity is how do you create more income? And I think that's where, yes, you got to control expenses, but if you're struggling to pay your bills, you really need to spend most of your time on figuring out how to solve the income equation, not the spending equation. Yeah, I, I like that because typically what you get with some or most financial advisors is cut the spending, cut the spending don't be buying your latte or your cappuccino or, you know, these are the things that make you who you are in terms of in getting through the day. And you look forward to this small reward if that's going to be a reward to you. And that's not going to, I suppose, help you in terms of saving for retirement. It's creating that extra income or that possible passive income that you need to work on. Yeah. And, and you, def- you definitely need to control spending. Mm-hmm. You can't be frivolous, but you know, if you're going to spend a half hour thinking about something, don't have it be the cable bill. Have it be where can I make some extra cash? And I like earlier on when you said whether it's a dollar or two thousand dollars. Again, that dollar is like flossing your teeth. Get in the habit and put that dollar away and don't touch exactly. it. Exactly. Exactly. And you make a really good point, Frank, because I I'm a big believer in, and this is where, from a financial advisor standpoint, I think I differ with a lot of people. Is the financial industry, especially when you're talking about retirement planning, they look at it from, okay, we're going to identify what you're going to need later on and look at what you have and identify what that gap is, how much more you need to have to get to there, right? And then ultimately, the two solutions that most investment advisors or financial planners offer is, okay, you either need to start saving more, more right now to fill this gap we've identified or you're going to have to settle for less later on. Well, those are two really sucky choices. And the, the problem with those choices are, let me restate them. You're either going to have to live less of a life right now or you're going to live less of a life later on. And because most financial advisors look at it only as an invest, investment in, equation, where it, that's a very a one-dimensional way of thinking about your life or retirement is just by saving and investing. There's so many other things. There's finding joy outside of consumerism. There's finding joy in building a business or building your career, building you know multiple flows of cash flow. There's so much more than just simply saving and investing because if you think about it, we're all trying to balance a teeter-totter. So you you have teeter-totters over there, don't you? I I was just going to say, what's a teeter-totter? You don't? Oh, no. Okay. So, you know, it's one person sits on one end and another person sits on the other end and and the middle is higher up and it just bounces back and forth. Okay. So so (laughs) you you don't have teeter-totters. Okay. So this, this analogy might not work very well. But we're all trying to balance living as well as we can today without sacrificing our tomorrow. Right, and right. we're all trying to balance that, right? Do I buy that latte? Well, I want to live well today, and I know it's a little frivolous, and then you make the equation, but it, it's not going to sacrifice tomorrow, so I'm getting that latte. We're all trying to balance those two things, and I think looking at it 
more multidimensionally is what's going to help us not feel like we have to sacrifice ourselves for retirement, like it's this big mountain we have to climb, but to figure out how we just have a much more enjoyable journey. So we're always living as well as we can today and still feeling comfortable that tomorrow is going to be okay. Right. Uh, this, this kind of ties in with an economic theory by Milton Friedman, known as the permanent income hypothesis, where we take into account not only current income, but expected income. And we can smooth out our consumption based on what we expect in the future. So I say, for example, if you're a student and you're taking on student debt, you're going to be living in debt up to a point where you know you're going to be able to repay that debt once you start working. And then when you get to a certain point, which possibly could be in your 40s, if you're working as an employee, that you end up being able to pay back and then start saving and save for retirement and you then live off that excess cash that you've saved all along. So that seems all well and good in what Milton Friedman had explained through his hypothesis. But again, it is only a hypothesis and it doesn't always work where we smooth out our consumption because you could get these unexpected events, which also is part of that theory. Yeah, exactly. So when it comes to retirement, here's a hard part with those theories is when, and let's think about retirement. So I'm 48, so I'm supposedly at that age. I should be thinking about retirement, right? I'm not that far away, you know, potentially. The problem is that, and this is the problem with a lot of of models that say, yes, you can retire, no, you can't, or this is all the things that you have to do, is I'm 48. I could not tell you distinctly what a retirement goal is. I mean, if I'm forced to, and a lot of time when people are thinking about retirement, they have to sort of guess at what their goals are because who knows 15 years from now what it's going to be. So the problem with calling them retirement goals is we have this ethos around goals that you have to hit your goals, right? You're a failure if you miss your goals. And if you set a goal, say 15 years out, you're going to feel everything that you're going to make financial decisions are going to be moving towards that goal that you've set. But that goal may not mean anything a year from now. So what what I do and what I recommend that people do when you're thinking about retirement is don't set long-term goals and think that you have to figure out how to make them happen. Set long-term aspirations, you know, those dreams that we have, and acknowledge that each year those dreams may change. But what you want to do to be actionable about things is set those long-term aspirations on retirement or whatever it might be, but you want to set short-term sprints that can be actionable. So a short-term sprint can be anywhere from a week to six months of I'm going to start allocating money to my retirement account at X percent by this date. And then you do that, and then you set another sprint, and then you set another sprint, and that allows those long-term aspirations to change over time. You've obviously spoken to a lot of people heading toward or that are in retirement. Have you have any feedback from them in terms of their disappointment when it came to their retirement age? Whether whether it's kind of like a life reflection that they wish they could have done something that and taken the risk, say for example, that you had taken with your company, or maybe have done something different that retirement isn't exactly what they actually thought it would be. Oh, that's a great question, Frank. Of course, I think. The idea of retirement as the, the, well, just think of what the word means, right? You know, the retirement was for our grandparents who 
were worn out from much more physical work and had a very short life expectancy once they retired. I mean, they retired because their bodies were worn out. Now people are retiring and they are a lot of times in some of the best shape of their life. They're most educated. They're the most energetic in terms of where they're at. And now they're looking at 20, 30 years of what do I do? What's my self-worth? What's, what, what am I going to be occupied with? And they find their kids are grown up, their grandkids are big enough that they don't want to do things. So what I find is people have regrets because they've worked so hard to get to this point and a lot of times too much and they missed the only life they had in terms of their children, spending more time with their spouse, spending more time with their friends and their hobbies. And then they get to retirement and they realize their kids are off doing their own life. Their relationship might not be where it should have been. And they regret that. You know, they sacrifice their life for the work because it's engaging and you have the affirmation and you have the monetary compensation that makes you feel good. And then you end up missing your family. That's the, that's the classic regrets that a lot of people still have. It's, it's quite devastating, I'm sure. And, you know, to actually deal with that. Yeah. Do you have, you have have time for a quick story? I'd love one. So I'll give you my worldview. So, and why it is this way. So I, if you asked Roger, what's your retirement plan? I am not planning on retiring. I am trying to live as balanced of a life as I can now in a life that's sustainable. So I'll be working into my seventies. And if you ask me how I live right now, I'm, I got, I've worked really hard to get here, but I've got the free time. I'm not rich, but I'm not poor. And I am living as balanced as I can. I'm trying to balance that teeter-totter, even though you don't know what that is. You'll have to look that up. I'm trying to balance. So I'm not trying to get to retirement. I'm trying to make sure that I am enjoy- I'm not missing the only life I have. And one of the reasons I am, I'm wired this way is I'm 48. Well, when my mom was 48, she passed away from cancer. And my mom was a single mother raised my sisters and I, and her life was all about sacrificing everything, obviously, to raise us as a single parent. But once we were somewhat self-sufficient, we would have these discussions, and she was always busting her butt working to and telling me that she'll enjoy things later on. She was working towards that retirement date. And unfortunately for her, she never got there. And that is something that we all are going to have to come to terms with is do we want to really miss the only life that we have for a time that was not promised to us? Doesn't mean we don't have to take care of that future and try to be prudent, but don't do it at the cost of your life right now. Yeah. And especially those people who are maybe younger, maybe in their 30s or even 20s, something that they wouldn't think of i'm sure there are some people who are actually gone into employment and it's not exactly what they perceived it to be and they're disillusioned having gone through an educational system and into the workforce and they're working i don't know eight to ten hours per day and it's a life that they didn't expect because they had aspirations and some people just accept it and get through life and possibly want to 
look forward to retirement, whereas others would take the risks and create that hobby or develop that hobby and create turn it into a business. Well, and it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be entrepreneurship or side hustle to do that. You can build a balanced life working for a company. But I think a lot of us feel that we're being acted upon. And there's a great book called QBQ, which is the question behind the question. It's a wonderful book. And it's a lot about personal responsibility. Regardless of what's happening to us, we have to always ask the question, what can I do to improve this situation? So even if events outside of our control, it refocuses your mind from being a victim or feeling acted upon to, okay, yeah, this really sucks, but what can I do to improve from where I'm at right now? And that's a great mindset, whether you work for a company or not. I know you covered in a podcast or a blog post that you've written about, but you mentioned that there are four myths that could ruin your retirement and how you could avoid them. Have we covered any of those myths during our conversation or would you like to share any of them with us? Uh, we covered them in uh, in uh, a roundabout way, but I can definitely cover those. Yeah, I don't mind even if you want to hit the number one. Yeah, number one is retirement is not a number. So you see a lot of popular culture. What's your, ne- what's your number? What's your retirement number? Meaning how much money do you have to have so you can say you can retire? And it sounds simple. It's a great marketing phrase. What's your number? And the problem is, if you think of your retirement as I just have to save to a number, and that's a common question I get asked, what's, how much do I need to save to get to retirement? The problem is, and the reason that's a myth is because it's a one, it goes back to that savings and investing mentality with the, that one-dimensional, and your life is so much more complicated than that, and we talked about a lot of the ways that it is complicated about that. Myth number two is you're going to spend a consistent amount throughout retirement. So most people, when they think of retirement, okay, when I'm 60 or 65, I'm going to need X amount of money a year to live inflation adjusted. And it might be some you know, percentage of what they spend on their life right now. So say $60,000 a year, inflation adjusted. And then they'll model and they'll plan that they're going to spend that amount until they pass away. So from, say, 60 to, say, age 90, if they pass away at age 90. The problem is we don't spend that way. We go through cycles in how we spend in retirement, and I've seen this in my practice, and we go through that first phase, which we call the go-go years of retirement, where it's sort of like honeymoon on life, right? You're, you're free of work. You're free of your kids. You have, you have, you're free on your schedule, and you go do things, and you're healthy and you're active, and those are your 60s typically. And then after a while, you go out of those go-go years where your spending is a little bit more than what you might have thought, and you go into the slow-go years where you've traveled, you've done all the, you've checked all those boxes, got all those T-shirts, and you start to slow down and settle into life. And then the later phase of life, which is called the no-go years, <laughs> which is, <laughs> Which is you're not going many places. You're 80s and 90s, and you're really settled in. So you're you're not going to spend a consistent on a, at a consistent basis to retirement. So don't plan that way because if you plan on a set number that you just adjust for inflation, it's going to drastically overestimate the cost of retirement. So that's that's myth number two. Myth myth number three is retirement means not working. You know, back to your grandparents and my grandparents. 
they were worn out. They weren't doing anything. My grandfather, he did not work. He couldn't work. He was dead tired from being a postman and working in a factory and things like that. What I find in my practice is if people are healthy enough, they want to work. They're just working on their own terms and making money and almost as a side benefit because they are educated and they still have stuff to give and they still want to have that connectiveness. So when you're planning for your retirement, assuming you're healthy enough, you might as well plan that you're going to have some income from work. And I have lots of great stories on people that do pretty cool things on their own terms that can make decent money. And then the last myth is that having a financial plan is enough. Everybody here is into economics. That's why they're listening to you, Frank. And I remember going through business school, writing a big detailed business plan, right? You remember the business plans you have to write with all the projections and everything else? Oh, yes. It's a big exercise. It's a productive exercise, but that's how a financial plan is. And that's how, you know, I know a lot of financial planners that deliver these plans and these huge, beautiful binders. And as a consumer, people... They get around, oh, man, I need a retirement plan. So they go get one. They get one of these big binders with all this paper in there, and then they check the box that they've taken care of it, and they put it on a shelf, and it sits there collecting dust for years. And they feel good because they got their retirement plan. Well, just like a business plan, and you can disagree with me you want, Frank, but as soon as it's printed, it starts to become obsolete pretty quickly because all those assumptions baked into it. I was just going to say it's quite fictional. Yes, exactly. (laughs) It's a good exercise. So I'm a little I'm much more of a lean startup method of planning in we do financial plans but we do the very lean and what we make sure happens because as much as we can't figure out what's going to happen in our lives we definitely can't figure out what's going to happen in the markets or in the economy or in our health or anything else so why build a big plan we do a lean plan and then we have lots of little conversations just like a business owner would to make little adjustments along the way. So that's why having a plan is just really the start of the journey. We touched on, say, pensions. Well, we didn't really touch on it, but regarding pensions, given the demographic profile of many developed countries, like the United States, like Ireland, France, Germany, we have an older population, or they're living longer in terms of a growing older population. And we have a younger workforce that are coming in that may not have the the boom in terms of the baby booms like the way they had in the 1940s. Is there a concern regarding a pension bomb and the ability to continue this repayment for the next generation? Now you now we're we're across we're across waters here. You're referring to Social Security or just private pensions? Could they affect both? Are private pensions secure? So when I, when I evaluate a pension for a client who has a pension, and there are fewer and fewer, right? And one, a pension goes a long way to solving the problem. There are great things, so whether it's Social Security or private pensions. What we do, in, a lot of them will have buyout options. And we evaluate, using our process, which one is best for the, the client situation in terms of putting them in a better situation to achieve their life goals. Nine times out of 10, it's better to take the pension than to take the lump sum. Because if you take the lump sum, you're taking out all of the investment risk and having to manage it to try to generate income. Now, when a company takes on the pension, you do have to evaluate the health, financial health excuse me, of that company and make a decision as to whether you're going to trust that company. Another factor in that is a lot of companies 
when someone selects a pension option will actually transfer that risk to a private insurance company. So you need to understand how it works within that. Generally, I'll be frank, Frank, I am not that concerned about the demographic shift because of, I think, capitalism. It works in ways we don't understand in terms of bringing up new growth outside of old growth. And I think the demographic trends, a lot of that, I know here in the U.S., is will change because of immigration. And, and you know, it's a big, big hot topic here right now, but in my mind, it just needs to be rationalized and organized. And right now, it's just a little bit of Wild West, but I think that will happen. So I'm less pessimistic than a lot of people when it comes to pensions, but I do think you need to look at the specific companies. We have in Ireland, or we don't have in Ireland, what you have, IRAs, Roth IRAs, and 401ks. And I don't really know much about these, but all I know is that it helps with putting money aside for the future. Would that be correct? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And there's some tax benefit. So, So will this money be taken out from your pay before tax? So, you, so the way that IRAs work, so in individual retirement accounts, what it stands for, is that assuming you don't make too much money, you can make a deductible contribution. So if you contribute $5,000, you can deduct that off of your taxable income. And then a Roth IRA is the exact opposite in that you, you can make the contribution and you don't get the deduction from taxes, but all of the growth will be tax-free. So it just pays you on the other end of the cycle. But they're just a you know, they're accounts that are just have a tax scheme attached to them and you you may pick up some some benefits from them, but even absent those things, if someone takes after tax income and invests it and does it with, you know, reasonable costs and is fairly tax efficient about it, it's just a different type of tax structure to put what you should be doing already anyway. Okay, I work in the public sector in Ireland because I'm a lecturer in a college and we have to pay a contribution toward our pension. And prior to the financial crisis of 2007 and 8, I was paying per month approximately 385 euro. Okay. And this was before tax. So I had a benefit there. So maybe something like what you were talking about. Now, in order to, because of the situation Ireland got into and we had to bail out banks and protect the bondholders, one strategy that the government implemented was to double our pension contribution rather than giving us a wage cut. So my contribution, pension contribution, is now approximately €800 per month, but I will not see the second half that I'm contributing ever. So you're just funding more of whatever the end benefit is. Yes, and I will only get to 385, but I won't get the other 385 or the 400 that I'm adding on. Lucky you. Mm, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> so well, I, I've been paying that now since, oh, for seven years, six six years, just say. So that's a yeah, lot I mean, of money. That is a lot. Of, and you don't have a choice. Don't have a choice. You don't have a choice. And- well, and where you're at, you have less levers from a country uh, economic standpoint than, say, the United States or even Britain. And in the United States especially because be, just because of its current position in the world, it has a lot of other levers that, that it can choose. 
in terms of dealing with stuff like that. So it's like in our country, we have Social Security, right? Mm-hmm. And there's lots of talk about that being you know, potentially bankrupt in the future. And if you really look at it, the economic levers that they can pull are they're going to tax the young generation and not give them benefits. So they're going to be in a situation like you. The younger generation is not going to have access to Social Security, but they're going to continue to have to pay for it. They're going to probably means test so if you make or have too much money when you're older, they're going to de- reduce your benefits. And they're definitely not good choices, are they? Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, and I'm, sh- I'm sure when you guys went through that crisis, and I remember that was brutal from a political standpoint and you know, and a lot of the politics around the bailouts and everything else, I can't imagine from being a private citizen wondering what the heck's going on. And it's easy to get caught up in all of that. And like me, like you, in my country, I only have this little tiny voice of me as a voter that I can use. And you feel like you're powerless. But I'll go back to that question behind the question. If a lot of these things happen, like in your case, you know, having to pay double for your pension up to about 800 euro, you don't have a choice in that, right? Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, you can... Be, you know, you, and you are a victim of what happened, but you have to look at what can I do? And I remember going through the economic crisis with clients. It was, okay, yeah, I know quantitative easing. I know how bad all this stuff might be. At the end of the day, we just have to have our own house in order. And if we have our own house in order, we can insulate ourselves from a lot of things. And that's the only way I know how to get through that. So, same with you, I'm assuming. It's like, man, I just have to have my own economic house in order. Exactly. So if this stuff really goes, that we can be the best of the worst in terms of making sure we can ride it out as best we can. And as well as that, I suppose, being a citizen, we do have to play our part outside of our own home. You know, So if it means having to do this in order to save whatever might be coming down the line, it's, a, it's something we had to accept. Well, I think you you can have your voice, you know, and the problem is you're going to, you know, if the majority say you have to accept it, you just have to accept it, even if you totally disagree with it. There's, you know, so little you can do sometimes. Yeah. Regarding real estate and talking about the financial crisis and there, like real estate has been badly affected. And now there's a turnaround and we, we see that turnaround in many countries, including Ireland. Is this something you deal with yourself in terms of giving a not not necessarily advice, but ways of having to plan real estate as an investment opportunity. Well, if you think about real estate, so you have a couple different options. You start off with your own home, and when you're closer in retirement, we generally say, let's have that sucker paid off because it's all about managing cash flow. So let's have our monthly obligation as low as possible. In terms of investment real estate, and we do give advice on real estate, we don't manage and go source real estate investments for clients, but we do evaluate things that they're looking at. And just like any investment, you have to just evaluate what your cash-on-cash return is going to be for the investment. And unfortunately, especially with individuals, you end up learning a lot of lessons. You know, If you buy a home and you can't cover the whole service on the investment from the cash flow, you better have some visibility that you can. 
And you better treat it like a business and have good tenants. And it better make good business sense on the front end. A lot of people get enamored with real estate and just go do it. Now, I don't know how it is on the commercial end in Ireland, but here, and I have a lot of clients that are in commercial real estate, when you're looking at a development, so say someone brings you a private placement memorandum, which is what we call it here, which is, hey, I'm going to build this apartment building as an example here are all my projections. This is what it's going to cost. And it's like that business plan we talked about. And this is what we think the returns will be to the investors. And here are the terms that you get as an investor. Give me your money and you can own part of this building. You'll be able to feel, touch it and everything else. And it sounds really good. The problem is, and I don't know if you deal with commercial real estate, Frank, but the problem is, and I review a lot of those proposals, is those proposals always look good, right? The numbers always look good on paper. So you have to pay really close attention to, okay, what are they estimating for debt service? What are they estimating for maintenance? What are they estimating for realistic rents that they're going to receive? All these little numbers on these tables that you see in these offerings all look great, but you don't, you got to really know whether they're grounded in reality. And that's where a lot of people get in trouble when they're investing in real estate because they look at these prospectuses and they are enamored with owning a building they can touch and they don't realize that, you know what, you can lose an anchor tenant and not replace them. You can have maintenance costs that are a lot higher than what they're putting on that paper. You got to know how real those things are. So that's a really scary thing. So it's really hard to do your due diligence because once you make the decision, it's pretty much illiquid. Yeah. And is there any rule of thumb in terms of what people should follow regarding, say, a percentage yield above what you have to repay? Is the magic number, say, 10% on what you pay? Say, for example, if you bought a property for 200000 would you be expecting minimum 20000 per year rent? It's really hard to say. I mean, I don't know how it is in Ireland, but here, you know, you go by capitalization rates, cap rates here in the U.S., they are at historical lows. So the re- there's so much money sloshing around because of quantitative easing. People are buying real estate at very low cap rates of you know the, the 5 6% rate area. So you could argue that that's a bubble. I don't know. Possibly. We just don't know because to me, what, looking from the outside, it's like a fictitious market. It's, not, like- it's, it's almost as if the, it's not a real market because of the QE and the extremely low rates are we so, hitting a, a level whereby we could see it all imploding again? So from a personal planning standpoint, what do you do with that? I mean, coming out of 07, 08, when all of that quantitative easing was going on and just you know programs that were just mind-boggling from an economic standpoint, if you follow fiscal policy, as a, a financial advisor, it was like, I don't get how any of this stuff works out. So you're very afraid to invest in it, right? And if you were afraid to invest because of all these extraordinary measures that were being taken and are still being taken, we would have missed a a big bull market in not just in all risk assets. So the question now is, well, we didn't do it back then or we didn't do enough of it back then. Do we do it now, five, six, seven years later when – how long does this party go on? And that's a really difficult situation. I tend to take the view you don't handicap and try to guess one way or the other. What you do is you make sure you have a lot of liquidity on your personal balance sheet. You, have, you minimize the bad debt. You have cash reserves. You have 
money reserved for any upcoming expenses that are coming up over the next year or two. So anything that's at risk really has a five plus year time frame. So even if you're wrong, you're not going to blow up your life. Your podcast, The Retirement Answer Man, and your blog, having looked back on your previous episodes, I think you've almost hit 100. Yeah, we're 94. 94, congratulations. I understand the amount of work that you actually put into, but what, <laughs> yeah, what one thing stands out to you in terms of maybe a piece of advice you gave or a guest that came on the show that had that one parting advice that resonated with you or your audience? Could you share that with us? Oh, wow. That's, that is hard. That is hard. Probably the thing that has resonated most with the audience is last January, I did a retirement plan on air for a listener. Wow, that's absolutely amazing, yeah. So he actually reached out to me to do a blog post, and he wanted to be the case study. And so, but, so what we did was, instead of that, we recorded the four steps that we go through. And I changed his name, and I changed some of the, the information so to protect his identity. And then last January, we aired each step of the process, and then I sent worksheets to all the listeners so they could plan alongside Carl. It was Ken Carl Retire. And that was that's probably the thing that's resonated most with listeners because they got to hear and they got that process to be demystified. It was almost like reality financial planning. So that's the thing that I've gotten the most feedback from. In fact, we're going to do it again this January with a new subject. I think bring the television cameras in. But I think because people, they know they need to be planning, and the problem is that it's intimidating because most financial people talk all about numbers, and, and it just gets intimidating. So I think it helped demystifies a way that's a little bit more personal. It's not about the money. It's about creating an amazing life, right? That's exactly it. Yeah. And as you said, as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode or this interview, you realized it's about people and not money. Oh, After you yeah. experienced that crash in 2000. Most definitely. Most definitely. Roger, can I ask you a number of quick fire questions before we wrap up? Shoot. Who would your main influencers be in terms of your path to being where you are now in terms of finance, regarding finance? Uh, number one, obviously, Jesus. Yeah. A lot of great lessons there. You're on the Bible belt, are you? <laughs> <laughs> I, still have, I still drink my wine um, and I dance. No, but uh, so a lot of great lessons there from really the biggest lessons from a personal finance. For me, I didn't have a lot of mentors and I had bad mentors early in my career was all of the, the financial screw ups that I made personally. You know, now that I'm 48, I'm very self-reflective and I've made some major screw-ups and at one point almost bankrupted our family. And I think that's probably where the best, the best lessons come from. Do you have any personal habits that helps you get focused on things done, not finance related, but personal habits? No, I got tons of personal habits. Uh, my affirmation that I say every morning that has really helped, and I heard this actually from uh, a firearms instructor of all things, who was a police officer. He said, now, he prays, but then he says, when I get up in the morning, I say, it's going to be an amazing day. I'm going to have trouble today, but it's still going to be an amazing day. And I think acknowledging that even though things aren't going to go your way, that it's still going to be an amazing day. 
And probably the other habit that has helped served me best is when I made the decision to really intentionally manage my relationships and distance myself from those that did not force me or encourage me to be a better person and surround myself with people that I would aspire to be like. And you really have to be careful though, because those, not that people that don't encourage you are bad people, it's just that you have to control what input you have coming into your head. Do you have an internet resource that you would like to share with us? An internet resource for finance? Yes, please. Okay, for finance, probably one of the funner finance sources is a podcast called Stacking Benjamins. I've heard of it, Jeff. Uh, I know Joe. He's a good. He's a Michigan State Spartan, which I am. That's our university that we went to. And he is a super sharp guy. He is a very good man. And his show is much more irrelevant. It's just fun. It's uh, you know, you you won't realize you're learning something because they're so goofy, but you are. And you mentioned QBQ as a book. Would you have another recommended book you'd like to share with us? Oh, QBQ is a great book. I think the How of Happiness. Sonia Labomirsky, I just had her on my show, and that is a great book, and it takes a scientific view on how we're wired to be happy and what activities we can take. So she she teaches at a university, and she actually has a laboratory where she studies happiness, so it's a little bit more science-based than, you know, self-help type of, of books. I know how much you love audio, so why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now. And finally, I'd love a takeaway in terms of advice, if you have any. And I'm sure you have, because we got plenty of it today. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really important to make sure you make the, the most of the only life you have. And retirement is part of that, but you don't miss where you're at today. I guess... The big takeaway, I heard this recently, and I've started to use it, is don't time travel. A lot of us time travel and relive our past and allow ourselves to be trapped because in our minds we're time traveling in the past, and that can rob you of today. Likewise, when you think of retirement, don't time travel too much into the future because it gets scary, and that can rob you of today. So when you're finding yourself rehashing old mess screw-ups or worrying about tomorrow, tell yourself, stop time traveling. And I'm sure take the positive out of it. Oh, yeah, always. Roger, thank you so much for being so inspiring and for joining me on Economic Rockstar. I had a blast and I personally learned a lot from you. Share it again with our listeners where they can find you. Well, my website's rogerwhitney.com and I have the Retirement Answer Man podcast, which is on iTunes and Stitcher and I don't know what else they have out there in Ireland, but I'm sure you can find it online. And I love your resources here at Retirement Learning Center. You have plenty of stuff here in terms of downloadable content, books and so on for retirement. And I Yeah, they have that budget method that we talked about early on. There's a worksheet that tells you exactly how to set it up right there in the Learning, learning Center. I'll be taking it. The Lazy Man's way to budget fantastic <laughs> you can find all the links to roger at economicrockstar.com forward slash roger with me roger thank you for being so generous with your time you are an economic rock star awesome glad we rocked it i'm so glad too. <laughs>